Since our colleague, the late Dr. Li Wenliang, sounded the first alarms of a novel coronavirus last December, COVID-19 has developed into a global pandemic. Not since the flu of 1918 has our society experienced this degree of threat to our health and to our happiness. This is a unique moment in our history, and we here at The Surgery Set are doing what we know how to do, which is to say podcasting, to help. We're telling the stories of this time from the people on the front lines. In these uncertain times, we want you to feel informed. We want you to feel supported. We want to give you the tools to be resilient in the face of what may be the hardest few months of our lives. And we want to remind you, frequently and forcefully, that you are awesome. These are the stories from the front line of this global crisis, featuring visits with the heroes who are making a difference when we need them the most, and ideas for how to stay well and balanced as we learn to live in social distance. From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, this is The Front Lines of COVID, a Surgery Set series. I'm Jonathan Kohler, a pediatric surgeon trying my best. Welcome. The first known case of COVID-19 in the United States was in Seattle, and it has become clear that community spread started there at least a few days before everywhere else in the country. Given the mathematical precision of the coronavirus' spread, that makes Seattle almost like a time machine. What they're experiencing today gives us a window into what our own communities may experience a week or two or three from now. All things considered, I can't think of a better place to be blazing the trail for the national response to COVID-19. I'm biased, of course, because I trained there, but you can take it from me that the people at the front of the front lines are some of the smartest, most dedicated people on earth. And that's especially true of Gianna Davidson and Estelle Williams, my guests today. Gianna is one of my closest friends from surgery residency, and Estelle was hands down the finest medical student I've ever had the pleasure of having on a service. They're now both acute care surgeons at the University of Washington, and they're here today to give us a glimpse of the future and at how they've adapted to the new realities of delivering care in a pandemic. Gianna and Estelle, thank you so much for joining us. You know, it feels like you're you're coming to us from the future, right? You're you're ten days or so probably ahead of the rest of the country out there in Seattle. First, you know, thank you for everything you guys have done. I know that there's been you know so much news coming out of Seattle about what healthcare providers there are doing and the the path that you guys are are blazing. You know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, it picked the great city of Seattle to uh, to be the place for this to hit. But I mean, having trained there, I I also feel like there's one place in the country you wanted to have be the first place that had to deal with this problem and figure out, you know, how everyone else should do it. Like you guys are, you guys are who I'd want. So welcome. Thank you. Talk a little bit about, you know, so what is life like out there right now? How has your practices surgeons been impacted and what are you guys doing to prepare for the coming of the wave? Or I guess, you know, at this point you guys probably have at least a few waves coming right over the bow. Yeah, it's, it's been really fascinating to see the evolution of the first few cases. And I look back on those few days and what we thought was going to happen in the next 12 hours or 48 hours. And then it felt like every 12 hours you were getting more information. And so it seemed to be the game continued to change. And I think one of the things that happened really early on in the setting of a lot of uncertainty is there became 
incident command center and a centralized way for communication to roll down through UW Medicine that could sort of bring all of recommendations together and then be disseminated from one location. And that was really critical because typically when you get information from the health system, there's like the medical director's newsletter, it's your section chief newsletter, then the CNO sends out something and then hospital administration sends out something and they're all just like slightly different. Right. And then for this, you know, in the middle of all of it, CDC changed guidelines for PPE. And so then you're going back and trying to figure out what was I supposed to rare? What did the nursing leadership tell us versus the medical director leadership. So that centralized communication piece was really critical. And I think of that happening in Seattle, one of the things we do have here is we have a lot of health systems that work together really well, despite the fact that they're completely independent. It's teams that are used to working well because it's centralized trauma service. So communication was really good. And the people at the helm of the leadership, you know, one of them, Dr. Laura Evans has experience within Ebola before when she came from NYU. And so having leadership like that at Central Command, I think was really helpful in being able to very quickly mobilize into a centralized communication so that people knew how they needed to prepare within their individual departments. And what have you done in emergency general surgery to prepare both to you know, make space for non-surgical patients and also to prepare your own staff for the inevitable need to operate on patients with COVID-19? You know, one of the things that happened for emergency general surgery is we have all the consults for the hospital that have, of course, emergency general surgery problems, but not necessarily trauma come to our team. And one of the things we recognized quickly is that our team was going to get consults that typically would go to medicine within our health system because our medicine teams were already stretched near capacity and then they were needing to mobilize a different additional COVID teams and MICU teams. And so we knew that our surge capacity would need to increase. And then the other thing that happened is we have a system that is two hospitals in one. And one of our hospitals, because they serve an older population in general, it's more of a community practice, they had a huge number of cases of COVID and they had to transition their operating rooms to ICUs. And so they essentially went on divert for surgical cases that came into the emergency department and they are being shifted all the way to our institution, which is down the street. You know, this is sort of a new two hospitals in one. And we were thinking, you know, we're going to learn to work together over the next couple of years. And then it became, oh, we're going to work together like tomorrow. So I think that there's, you know, fortunately, you know, we have a relationship. They're a really phenomenal group, but there was a lot of, you know, days with 14 hours of meetings to figure out how that coordination would go given we had separate paging operators and we needed to know how to very quickly mobilize patients between the two institutions. The other thing we recognize from an emergency general surgery perspective is once you go into a COVID positive operating room or COVID suspected positive operating room, you're donning all of the PPE that you would be doing if you knew that they were positive. And that surgeon, once they walk in the room, can't bring other fomites into the room. So your pager's out, your cell phone is out you're not gonna stop and talk to the transfer center. So we very rapidly needed to create a backup system so that if we have one surgeon that goes out, there's another person that can you know, really be able to step in. So what's the current structure of your program now? Like who's, uh, who's doing what and how have you kind of changed your daily routines? The structure now has actually, I guess, moved into within emergency general surgery our own sort of disaster team response. And we've restructured both our resident structure and our um, attending level structure to address potential surge in patients. We basically, before, were divided within the University of Washington kind of general surgery by specialty and sort of subspecialty groups. 
into five major services. And now we've basically coalesced all those services into basically one general surgery service and have created teams within our resident structure so that we can sort of minimize the number of house staff that are in the hospital at any given time to minimize exposure. And that's really the crux of it when we're looking at from this kind of surge capacity is we have to preserve you know, healthcare workers who are limiting their exposure to COVID-19 so that if there is an exposure, we can swamp out teams and always have uh, surgeons available in order to continue to keep patient care moving forward. So our teams on the resident side were broken down into the inpatient OR and then our clinic team. The clinic team is more functioning at home because our clinics have decreased in volume significantly and we're trying to move more to only seeing urgent patients in clinic that need to be seen but doing more telemedicine which is something new that I don't think surgeons ever thought they'd be doing. Our inpatient team runs the entire inpatient service for all of our surgical services and specialties. And then our OR team takes care of any of our operations and then they'll switch weekly. And then the rest of our attendings are moving forward with doing cancer operations for those who have those more urgent cancer operations that need to go. And then the rest of us who have more of an elective practice and non-urgent patients, those have been rescheduled right now until we can basically get more control of the pandemic and then reinstitute our elective practice, but that's currently on pause. Is everybody sort of a general surgeon now? Like, have you taken your subspecialists and put them into the acute care or emergency general surgery pool? How do they feel about that? (laughs) That's a great question. I don't know what they say behind our back, but (laughs) we all make sure that we rally together. Everybody's been awesome. I think everybody's stepped up to the plate and everybody's happy to take care of each other because we recognize the importance of supporting your colleagues, especially during this time. We're all basically going to have to adjust to a new normal. The EGS attending is still within, so we have what we call an EGS or emergency general surgery who acts as the on-call attending and the entire general surgery department rotates as a backup surgeon so that we can keep as many people again out of the hospital as possible and then have a designated surgeon to act as backup. And also to relieve us as the emergency general surgeons because we have to preserve and not burn out because we're going to be the primary team sort of keeping our urgent emergency general surgery service, you know, moving forward, keeping us going. I don't know if Gianna wanted to add anything. Yeah, I mean, I think the really great part is there, there's an emotional, not emotional weight, it's not the right word. There's an additional weight in, I think, walking into a suspected COVID positive room. And it includes things like, what the heck is the order that I need to put all this extra stuff on? And how do I take it out without contaminating myself? And if you're also thinking about like the transfer center called me and they have two people they want to talk about and all of those other things, just having someone else there to say like, Hey, I've got the rest of the service. You focus on this. You doing okay. Like, I feel like our colleagues like really step in um, and do that in a way that's incredibly supportive. It makes you definitely feel like you're not like isolated on this in this one case. And, you know, thinking about, God, am I going to go home and contaminate my my family? Does this is this in my hair? You know, you know. I think all of the things that we think about when we get home and then see the rest of our family that is not exposed but are otherwise staying at home, and that's really helpful. I'd say you know today is the day we sort of formally announced we're going to need a backup call system, and 
I got a ton of emails from the breast surgeon saying, you know, we haven't taken call in so many years, but how can we help? It's really, it's just phenomenal to see that. I think a lot of times when people are trying to get their cancer cases done, while we have rooms and staff available, people know that their rooms will run really late because they're cramming in many more cases than they typically would. And, you know, people are double scrubbing or helping to scrub them out so that you can just keep going. And I think that's been awesome to see. Yeah. So fantastic. I mean, I think, and I mean, I'm, Obviously, having trained there, you know, I know the people you're talking about, and I mean, just like I said, the right place to to be dealing with this for the first time. But I think it, I have sort of seen as we've talked even here, you know, this sort of crucible moment is sort of reminding us about the central mission of medicine, and and that we're all in this, you know, not for the because we so enjoy the intersectional politics of it all, but because we want to like all get in the moment and do this, you know, like we we want to be there to take care of patients. It's it's so cool. Estelle, yeah. I mean, you, you published a beautiful essay about sort of your initial responses to being in the center of this crisis and, and your perspectives on it, which come from a variety of, of perspectives. And we'll link to that so people can read the whole thing. But maybe just can you describe sort of your thought process, you know, as you have experience this, like you said, as a as a person, as a physician, and as a surgeon? I think that like most people, we all kind of started in a place of almost disbelief, like this can't be as serious as it's made out to be. And that quickly transitioned when we realized like here in Washington State that we were, you know, that initial epicenter. And as the cases started to grow, I think that, that feeling didn't last very long. It moved more into the space of we need to understand what's happening because this is a very real thing that is rapidly changing the way in which we are going to be practicing medicine and even looking after our family members. You know, um, my, and I think a lot of my colleagues agree, the next thing you do is you, when we hear about the initial demographics of individuals who are kind of most affected by this with our older, more vulnerable populations, my thoughts went to my dad and my mom and a lot of the other people in my life who are more vulnerable and making sure that they're going to be safe. You know, they're in California. They're now under the mandatory sort of shelter in place that's happening in the Bay Area and making sure they understood the importance of adhering to those policies. I also struggle a lot with hearing about a lot of the people. I mean, we were, you know, just talking about a lot of the people who are young and within my generation who took this as an opportunity to go on extra vacations and not really understanding the severity and the you know, impact this has on other individuals and stepping outside of ourselves as, you know, in the United States, we are very much tied to this idea of individualism and my constitutional right to do what I want to do and how this is not about one individual person. It is what is best for the collective, for the greater good of all, all of us. I think that from my own sort of individual lens, recognizing like the sheer impact that this will continue to have on our most marginalized populations. And that is one thing that, you know, I really, I, I'm saddened by is because we know already we had a healthcare system that didn't meet the needs of all of our citizens to begin with. We had very marginalized populations to begin with within our current healthcare structure. And with this added insult, it's almost like we're putting a community that was already starting, you know, like negative 10 behind, you know, even further behind. And in a time where what used to be considered like socialist principles, like giving people a basic income right now or making for sure people don't have to pay for testing for COVID-19, you know, that now some of the data is starting to come out about the number of people we have unemployed and how many people are going to lose health insurance. And so you 
recognize that we already struggled to take care of so many people before and trying to find ways to get them charity care or find ways to get them to cover their health care costs. And in the midst of all of what we're already struggling with right now, to know that we will continue to have a population of people who will be concerned about what will happen if I get hospitalized and I can't afford the bill that's going to come after this pandemic hopefully passes? Or what if those jobs don't come back, which we know a number of those jobs will not come back after this. And we're going to have a huge portion of the population that remains unemployed and that's uninsured. And so even in Seattle, where we have a huge population of those who are unhoused and that has been at the forefront of our conversations before the pandemic began. Um, we have to consider those individuals, you know, now as we begin thinking about, you know, what will, what will the rebuilding look like? Every time I take a step back and think like, well, what is, you know, what does this mean for six months or a year or two years from now? It seems so overwhelming, right? And it's easier in a way to just sort of say, well, okay, what, who's on call right now? What are the cases on the board right now? But I think we have to start thinking about like, what is what does the world look like after this? And, and what sort of crucible for our society is this going to be? And how do we direct it for good to the degree that, that we can? I think those eyes will really be open to the impact of your insurance being tied to your work in a way that maybe it wasn't prior to this. I mean, that has always been something that I have struggled with as being like a ridiculous concept because the second you get sick and you can't work and then you lose your insurance and that is absolutely what we're seeing here. So I think I love your point with that, Estelle. And I think one of the things our team does, we do a lot of emergency general surgery, but we also have an elective clinic and an elective OR four days a week. So we do a ton of bread and butter stuff. And so when people said, we're going to cancel elective cases, our team canceled a ton of them in part to make room for the cancer operations. But when you talk about triage of cases, we don't usually take into account quality of life or you know, having access to somebody that can do provide childcare at the time that somebody needs surgery to get back to work. And so it's been interesting. It's been great that the American College of Surgeons sort of came out with, you know, recommendations for triage, but I think it's causing all of us to sit down and make lists of what are we hearing from our patients as we triage these elective cases coming back in, that it's going to be, I think, really important and not something that we've had to think about in quite that same way before. Speaking of triage protocols and, and the American College has you know, some good resources on this, but Seattle has also published all of their protocols, right? You've, you've got them up for people to see. Yeah, that's been really incredibly helpful to have the protocols as we develop them. And as soon as they're approved, they sort of are going into a central site that people are trying to promote because we realize we're writing these protocols day and night. And you recognize when you need a protocol as questions come up, like, you know, how do we have a pre-team huddle to make sure we have everything we need, you know, to go into the operating room with the suspected positive COVID patient. And so as we're writing them, you know, the goal is to be able to rapidly disseminate this because we know this is going to roll through other healthcare systems. And we want what we've learned as a whole to be able to be used. I think that's a huge number of calls I get a day is from, you know, friends that we all trained with, you know, buddies from medical school that are saying, what do we need to do to get our system ready? And so it's great to be able to point them to sort of one setting. And I think the infectious disease and the medicine leadership has done a just phenomenal job of making that transparency and communication be a priority. And the emergency room folks have a whole section up there too, which is really great. Yeah. And we'll put a, a link to that in the show notes as well, but it's covid19.uwmedicine.edu. Right? That's right. Yeah. It's a hugely valuable resource. Well, I'm going to let you guys get back to your busy, busy lives, but 
I do want to note that like we are, we're communicating by Zoom and you know, even though you guys are in the middle of this pandemic, you're both at home right now. Talk a little bit maybe before we go about you know, how in the middle of this sort of global phenomenon, how are you staying grounded, balanced, sane? Like what are, what are your tricks? We're not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you cover it well. Yeah, that's not a thing. I think it was helpful in the first few days when we started having Zoom meetings. One thing that we changed pretty rapidly from culture is full disclosure. I used to get on the faculty Zoom meeting at 630 in the morning and I was almost always on my Peloton. And so (laughs) the rules of engagement have changed a little bit and not when I'm presenting, obviously, but you know, a lot of it's informational and meetings were meant to communicate information, but not to be dialogue. And I think it has forced us to turn on the video on every screen. People are checking in with each other. That's like built into the agenda this morning. Our chair did a virtual happy hour on Zoom, which people afterwards were like, that was really great to get to see everybody and hear how they're doing and how their kids are doing. I think the other thing, which is probably similar to a lot of places is like, schools are shut down. So people working from home, most Zoom meetings, people also have their children like sort of like bouncing around them, which is fun to see as well. I mean, sort of like warms my heart to have a friend be dive bummed by their five-year-old in the middle of a meeting. You think of self? <laughs> what are you doing? Netflix? I have a 14-year-old at home that I've had to create a homeschooling schedule for. And <laughs> so that's been. Fun. They didn't send him home with a plan. No, no plan yeah. at all. No instruction manual. Nothing to do oh. with thirteen-year-old for twenty-four-seven when we usually got a break before this. And then a two-and-a-half-year-old toddler who is running around as well and needing all of the pre-kindergarten interaction. And so I think that on a personal note, you know, disaster plan. I, I honestly, as much as you know, you're a physician, you'd think we've talked about like what to do in a case of an emergency. We hadn't had one. Mm-hmm. And this has actually forced us as a family to come together and say, what is our disaster plan? And creating a disaster plan for family that live out of state. I had never thought about, you know, if we are in a state of national quarantine or lockdown, you know, what in what kind of assistance and who's designated in the local area, like friends or people to check in on family members so that, you know, I'm not so worried. And funny enough, although you you think, well, how is that self-care taking care of it? But I think it takes a lot of the anxiety off, especially as a surgeon, just like having a plan and being able to think about these things. Absolutely. Feeling out of control, but really like, what can I do reasonably within my control to make sure that the people I love are safe? Because I know that's something that matters so much. And then kind of diving into the things that, you know, my husband and I have always kind of grounded ourselves in. I mean, we own a social justice library that's really focused on community. And so he's delved a lot in working with some of the graduate students from the School of Education on developing educational tools and resources for our students here in Seattle area to get access for those who don't have access to additional resources. How do we ensure that they're not behind when you know, school does resume, and then connecting with community at large in the spirit of giving that Seattle and other surrounding cities have really tapped into is how do we take care of our neighbors? How do we step out of this place of individualism and really care about our neighbors and those around us? And we've done more walks. We go for walks around the block more than we ever have. (laughs) I've met so many more neighbors at a good, safe social distancing (laughs) But yeah, um, it's been good to, the sun's been out in Seattle, which Jonathan, you know, is always a wonderful thing. So it's been wonderful to go for walks every night and watch my daughter ride her bike with training wheels. Yeah, Fantastic. I think there's a lot of things we take from this. You know, 
that first of all, you recognize how many meetings you didn't need hmm. and how many meetings are productive with like good engagement. I thought with people being home, it would be like a, you know, that sort of chaos around the office of drop-in meetings would be better. But I mean, I was 15 minutes late to this because it's like the constant drop-in meetings are just on the phone, but it's good because there's a really good community around it. And I think it's people are reaching out and are collaborative. And, you know, when I met with the medicine folks the other day, like we had a great brainstorm of saying like when somebody flips the table over, like you get to reset it in the way that you think this is what we should have been doing. And I think there'll be a lot of opportunity for how we collaborate across groups and within our own division and that's been really awesome to see like accelerated change and you know breaking down barriers and artificial bureaucracy and yeah yep. well thank you guys so much i mean it's such a pleasure to have you here it's such a great opportunity i mean this whole event has allowed us you know me to see like old friends and reconnect and and it's so good to see that you know our future is in good hands out there we look forward to following in your footsteps and uh and thank you for, for paving the way and showing us how it's done. You guys got this. <laughs> thanks for having us on here. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. Thanks to Gianna and Estelle for making the time to join us. I hope we can get back to them soon. I want to leave you today with a performance by Yo-Yo Ma, who's been leading an effort to make songs of comfort in these hard times. We'll have a link in the show notes. Be well. If you have an experience with COVID-19 you'd like to share or a question you want answered on the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out to me on Twitter at J.E. Kohler. That's K-O-H-L-E-R. You can also send me an email at Kohler at surgery.wisc.edu. If you want to hear about something other than COVID-19, our regular program is focused on the latest innovations in surgery, including interviews with the pioneers at its cutting edge. 
If you're new here, feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. Give our Facebook page a like and follow us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson, J.P. Swenson, and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was edited by J.P. Swenson. Special thanks to Nicole Jennings, Rebecca Minter, and everyone else in our department pulling together during this adventure. Until next time, be well and stay in touch, friends. Remember, you can't stop the clock. This too shall pass. <laughs>